thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. My name is Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and joining me through the miracle of modern technology is my co-host, Trevor Boswell. How's it going, Bo? Hey, I'm doing great, Jello. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, man. Uh, yeah, I say the miracle of modern technology because had things not changed, I would have been right out there in Georgia with you, but instead, I'm still back here in California for reasons you talked about last time. Yeah, that's right. You're right. The uh, airline guards looks kindly upon you, I guess we'll call it. <laughs> Oh, they certainly did, man. The week before I was supposed to leave, I got an announcement that I was being reinstated to my old aircraft in my old base, and I was ecstatic for a few days. And then I didn't hear anything more, and I thought, uh-oh, they're going to still make me go train on that other airplane and fly it for a couple of months before I go back. So then I was nervous again. And then on the Thursday before I was supposed to leave on Sunday, they said, eh, don't come out. Don't call us. We'll call you. So life is good. I-, I wish you had the same, my friend. I know you're about ready to jump into some training yourself. That is true. It is uh, fast and furious here with uh, all the podcast stuff and uh, gearing up for <laughs> about a month worth of training. So yeah. it's a blessing and a curse. I'll get to be uh, based where I live. So that's good for not having to commute. But, you know, learning a new airplane is not always an easy thing. Yeah. At any rate, back to everyone who might be listening. If you're tuning in for the first time, this is going to be a different kind of episode. We're taking a break from the normal routine, not only to get caught up on listener questions, but also just to make the episode numbers work out. Now, Boat, you are doing the Warbird series now, and that's going to, I think, happen at the end of every month. But we're also trying to preserve episode 111. And Boat, I know you know, but I wonder if the listeners can figure out why. <laughs> Duh. So anyway, we'll do uh, 109 and 110 the rest of this month, and 111 will come first thing in May. But otherwise, dude, P38 episode 108, that was incredible. Yeah, it was definitely a good time. You walk into these things, as you're well aware, and you never know what you're going to get with the, the person that you're talking to. You know what? Sometimes you find these hidden gems that you just don't necessarily have like great expectations for, for lack of a better way to put it. But man, I'll tell you what, Captain Hannah was phenomenal and his story was amazing. And the airplane itself is amazing. But man, you know, the intro talks about most importantly the people. And I'll tell you what, that is exactly the most correct thing I think oh, that yeah. we say on this show for sure. Absolutely. Well, next time we do a listener survey, we should add a category for funniest guest without trying to be funniest. Because to me, I was rolling and I don't <laughs> think he was trying to be funny. You know, he's what, 98, about maybe 99 by now? And 99 now. Now, wow. All right. And he kind of talked, dare I say, a little bit like Yosemite Sam. And uh, I just thought he was a character and a lot of fun. And of course, you know, as fellow fighter pilots, we always pick on each other. So anyone who's a little aghast at that, that's just how we treat each other. So I hope that's fair game, but he was good people. And did you get a chance to circle back and let him know his episode aired? I did. I reached back out to him and some of the folks that had helped us get in touch with him and, and put that out there to him. So they have reached back to me and have enjoyed the experience, uh, getting to hear his voice and whatnot. And I'm sure they've probably heard a bunch of the stories throughout you know his life and knowing him, but, uh, yeah. it's always great to hear the listener feedback and see the positive reviews out there. <laughs> 
By the way, last time I saw you, did I give you some thank you cards? Because I still send thank you cards to our guests. I'm kind of old fashioned in that regard. So if I didn't, I need to give you some. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Shoot it my way. I think you gave me a bunch of stuff. I'd have to go back and look at the bag though. No, it's fine. They're podcast specific. They've got our yep. colors and font and stuff. And I just, when guys take the time to be on the show, I send them a little thank you and a couple, you know, a sticker and a magnet and stuff they can give yep. their kids or whatever. But the other thing is, man, you got a what? A new Warbird song and even a new engine startup at the beginning. That was cool. Yeah. For the listeners, you know, fortunately, it's not me singing it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we did work with our amazing musician on getting all of the theming, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, set up properly. You saw the image there for the episode for the P38 and kind of a little more of an olive drab versus the traditional black and white that we typically do. So trying to kind of make it its own separate section, similar to Bomber Month or those kind of specific Army Aviation Month things that we've done in the past, but Mm -hmm. setting it apart from the traditional episode, I guess. Well, yours will be unique in that a lot of the other series we've had have been sequential, but yours will be, again, targeting for the end of every month. And I realize you're about to go into training. So if I need to help out, let me know. But yeah, like you said, we've got a new song. We've got the new startup. We've got new artwork. Big thanks to our musician, Jaime, and our graphic designer, Yannick. Got a whole team of folks that help with this. And Mm -hmm. I tell you, just personally for me, doing now two shows a month instead of three is a huge help. And I bet you can get a small taste of what it must like to be (laughs) doing three of these, just (laughs) doing one. It's, It's a bit of work, isn't it? Oh, it's definitely a bit of work. And, you know, in anticipation, of going to training here coming up, I did kind of push a little bit. So January and February were, were relatively busy for me trying to get a little bit of a backlog of uh, episodes ready to go as I uh, take a little bit of a hiatus on the recording front. Mm-hmm. So we do have two more Warbird episodes coming up the next couple months. Hopefully everybody will enjoy those, but it'll be nice to, in some ways, I guess, take a break, even though I'm not really taking a break. <laughs> well, what's the one coming up at the end of this month on 110? For April, we are going with the Avro Lancaster Bomber. Uh, We have a lovely guest uh, that we were able to record with up in uh, Ottawa, Canada. That is a fantastic episode. And like I mentioned last week, they are a little bit longer. And that one is, uh, in fact, one of the longer ones there. So I expect a little bit shorter of an intro and outro going in and out of that one. We'll follow that up with a uh, pretty fantastic look at the uh, P-51 in May uh, at the end of the month there. And then I did uh, record... Uh, not only the audio for the episode itself, but then about a two-hour video with our guest that uh, we'll put oh. out there for the Patreon listeners or anybody that's looking for additional content. He's got some amazing stories during that and some uh, images to go with it as well. So it's well worth the watch. Yeah, fantastic. And thanks for the plug on Patreon. That is still the way this show seems to financially get from month to month as we have a, about 570-ish very generous supporters at all levels and they get for their donation, if you will, a little something special, whether it's a early access to the episodes or sometimes at the higher tiers, they spend 30 minutes on the phone with me. And if I can get you to do some of them once in a while, yeah. uh, maybe you and we've got shirts and polos and we send and all kinds of other behind the scenes, background stuff. So yeah, appreciate you mentioning that. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. In addition to that though, we've also had, uh, some of the listeners might've noticed we had Verizon sponsor us last month. And in fact, one guy did email me, goes, Ooh, Verizon, you arrived. <laughs> I said, all right. <laughs> so we get a little ad revenue that way. And we got some other stuff. Of course, we have merchandise on our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. So of course, you know, the show's free, enjoy it. But if you're interested in any merch books or supporting the show, there's different ways to do that. We really do appreciate it. Before your Avro Lancaster episode, but we're going to have an episode on DARPA. 
Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, I think it is. That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a really good one. So that'll be mid-month. And then, like you talked about, we got some stuff coming up in May and then P51. Now, if the world continues to reopen, I think June is going to be Top Gun Month because July 2nd is supposed to be the movie. So really looking forward to that. Let's hope. Yeah, no doubt. Let's see what else is going on on the show. We're still working on our new show, The Merge. It's slow coming, but you might remember we talked about it on episode 100. That's the show that's going to be longer stories over a season of multiple episodes. And season one, we're working on it. It takes time. And then we have a new merchandise manager who joined the team. He's going to help us with our strategy. So we'll be working on the different things we offer and what sizes, colors, and what we offer and what we don't, stuff like that. So lots going on on the show. But Boat, I do have one Oh, I don't know what to call it. Correction, I guess. But we had a couple of listener comments before we get to the questions on, I think it was the law of armed conflict where you and I were talking about what constitutes an aerial victory. Yep. Yep. And a couple of different people said, hey, wait a minute. Observation balloons were not as easy to shoot down as you guys made it sound. And so I'll quote one of the emails here. He says, they were well defended by AAA because they were critical in walking artillery fire onto the enemy along with watching enemy movements in the trenches. And so it was considered by many to be even harder to kill a balloon than a plane because they would start to lower it as soon as they saw a plane heading its way. And the balloon took many hits to down, so pilots had to get close. And many pilots were killed by ground fire, including by rifle fire, trying to take out the balloon. So who knew? Clearly somebody did, but I didn't. Oh, yeah. I'm not sitting there flying back in World War One to know what that looks or feels like. But uh, I mean, yeah, that all makes sense. And by no means, I think either of us trying to denigrate what a kill is or the validity yeah. of said kill. But there's so many different opinions on this. I don't know what to say, Jill. It's, it just is kind of what it is throughout history. And you look at ACE, like the number has changed, too. Oh, yeah. There used to be three, you said? I think it was three or something to that effect. And we're probably going to get talked to about that one too, but you know, like that's right. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, it is what it is and it changes over time. And back in world war one, they weren't thinking about drones. So here we are now. Well, and I'll fall back on what I always say. I wanted this show from the beginning to be three things, authentic, factual, and personal. So we authentically just kind of assumed, I guess that, Hey, there's a big balloon, shoot it. And guess what? The air comes out and it falls. Not so, apparently. So the factual part is I will confess when we're wrong and we'll thank the folks who email us and tell us. So authentic, factual, personal, that's what we strive for. And so stay tuned because what you hear on one episode might be corrected on a subsequent episode. But Fair enough. Anyway, all right, Boat. So we told people we were going to uh, cover a couple of listener questions and we might just about clear out all of them. So what do you say we start with some phone calls? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, here's the first one. Hello, this is Mr. Dutchwood from Lodi. Hey, something I saw years ago, really neat. It was at an air show at Mather. It was a Bengals Navy A6 intruder. I believe it was an A6E. But the beanie, the bombardier navigator, I was talking to him, and he goes, Dad. He was expecting Dad, which I didn't know. But it was so cool because Dad came to the air show that his son brought the jet. He came with the jet. And then I talked to the dad. Dad talked about his son. He was proud of his son. While you were in the Navy, did you get an opportunity to take your Hornet to an air show where you got to see your mom, dad, brother, sister, cousin, anything like that? I mean, I could imagine how proud I would be if I was an airplane pilot and I brought my jet to an air show and I got to show it off. So anyway, just on a personal level question, have you ever gotten to take your jet back to your hometown for a display? Oh, have you ever put on a display at your hometown? Anyway, awesome show. Keep it up. 
All right, Dutch, thanks for the question. Lodi up there in the Central Valley, driven through there a few times on Highway 99. Boat, I don't know. You better take this one because the only thing I've ever done is fly into a small airport where my parents were waiting. And far be it for me to do an impromptu air show. I did do one touch and go and selected a little afterburner just to be noisy. But I just, you know, stayed in the pattern, circled back around. And when I shut down, they came up to the jet. And that was sure cool enough for them. So I didn't want to get in any kind of trouble. But what about you? (laughs) Well, I'd say you got me beat. On just the opening statement there, I've done nothing with respect to air shows with me flying an aircraft. Okay. You know, we'll fly in to an air show to have a static display of an aircraft or something like that. That's about the most Mm -hmm. connection to an air show I've ever had beyond going to it as a visitor. So, um, yeah, Yeah. nothing specific in that respect. Maybe this is a big difference between the Navy and the Air Force. There's a lot of things that say you will not do this kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. the Air Force is different philosophically when it comes to their guidance and regulations and saying, if it's not written down, you can't do it kind of thing. (laughs) So uh, there's some of that there as well. In other words, in the Navy, you can do it unless we told you not to. In the Air Force, you can only do it if we told you you can. Exactly. Effectively, the summary of it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Come to think of it, I just remembered I flew when I was a Top Gun instructor. So 2001 or two, one of the jets over to the Lake Tahoe airport, kind of down there by the uh, South Lake Tahoe. Yeah. We just landed the thing and, and they had a little air fest day. And my wife drove over because there wasn't much to do in Fallon. So she came over and hung out for the day. And when we took off and kind of did a low transition, just again, just trying to make a little noise, she was already driving away. And we happened to fly very near over her on the road. (laughs) She said she about lost control of the vehicle because it was so loud. But uh, (laughs) you're right. There's, in fact, I've had friends who've gotten in trouble going to hometown airports and, you know, flying over their houses or farms and, trying to do something suddenly and uh, it's never good. So I think those are the exceptions. Most of us want to keep flying because it's fun. And so we uh, don't generally do anything more than what's permitted. Yep. All right, let's take another phone call. Hey, this is Stephen Hampton from Merced, California. I have a question. Is it weird that I'm not into civilian aviation? I don't really have an interest. I don't know anything about civilian aircraft except for a 747 and a 707. And then I have another question. Is it weird to talk to people that know more than the average civilian when it comes to military aircraft? Because I've been told by other fighter pilots when I went to air shows and talked to them, they're like, oh my gosh, how do you know this stuff? I've been researching military and military aviation since like seventh grade. It's kind of my hobby. And, uh, Love the podcast. Have a nice day. Well, Steve, you know, who am I to tell you what's okay to like and not like? I mean, boat, what? You play golf, right? I fly fish. I don't particularly golf, and you probably don't fly fish, and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. No, I think that's totally fair, and there's certain things about civil aviation that are more exciting, I think, than maybe military aviation and vice versa, so I think whatever floats your boat, no pun intended, is totally, (laughs) totally fine with me and everybody else, or at least it should be, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So when Sunshine used to be a co-host, we had an expression that was a little bit tricky there. I won't reiterate it, but you could probably imagine. But yeah, we got to be careful with call signs around here, don't we? All right. Anyway, let's take another phone call. Hey, Vincent. My name is Spencer Hamilton, and uh, I'm calling from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm an avid listener of your podcast, and I really enjoyed your episode about the F-15E and the F-15 single seat. My question today is, or rather a comment, is I was listening to the B-52 episode, and there's a movie that I thought really captured what it was like to be in the B-52. It's called By Don's Early Light. It's an HBO movie. 
it's about an hour and a half long, and it's about if World War III started, what would happen? And I think it really captures the tactical side because all the bombers were scrambled, and then uh, it follows the crew all the way up until their positive control point. I just thought that the listeners wanted to get more insight on what that was like. They would find that movie helpful. Thanks, and I hope to hear more episodes. Bye. All right, Spencer, thanks for the call. I've not been up to Kalamazoo, but it sounds like a nice place and uh, not seen by Don's early light, but I looked it up and it starred James Earl Jones and Rip Torn, who was in, I think, one of the Men in Black movies. So I don't know, maybe we'll have to check it out. How about you, Boat? Uh, also have not seen it, but uh, yeah, another one. I'll add it to my giant list of uh, things that I should probably have seen before I started getting into aviation podcasting. So, well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, hold on. Just on a side note, one of the reasons I thought this whole podcasting thing would be a good idea is it's fairly mobile. So I don't know what you normally do on layovers. I mean, you can only watch, at least I can only watch so much TV. You can only work out so much. You really can't spend too much time in the bar. Yep. And so having a little something extra to do. So let's start a list of things we can watch next time we're in Kalamazoo on layover. Although I guess we should look up Spencer. So, yeah. All right, let's take our final phone call then. And this one is from one of our Patreon supporters. Hey, it's uh, Kevin calling from Brampton, Ontario. I have a follow-up question to a question I posed last year about post-stall maneuvers. This question is more specifically about floppy nozzles, or I guess the technical term for that would be thrust vectoring nozzles. But I like to call them floppy nozzles. You know, they flop. They flop up and down, to and fro, and that's what allows you to send thrust in a direction other than straight back. What I want to know is, why haven't we seen more U.S.-made jets with that capability? Because it seems like it, it's a good thing to have. I mean, it's from what I understand that it's not the be-all, end-all. It's not like you must have thrust vectoring in order to be a good dogfighter or a good attack aircraft. It'd be nice to have, wouldn't it? And I know there's been test beds that have had that capability. I mean, I think we all know about Harvey, the little hornet that could. <clears throat> vector his thrust. But I'm just wondering why we haven't seen that capability sort of shoehorned into a full production aircraft. Because why not? I mean, floppy nozzles are awesome. You can do backflips. You can drift fighter jets. I mean, come on. That's awesome. There should be more of that. All right, Boat. Well, I can't think of any Navy airplane that has thrust vectoring, so I'm just going to defer straight to you on this one. Kevin, I think the short answer is you have to look at what the aircraft's designed to do. And I'm sure everybody's looking at the Joint Strike Fighter and saying, well, the B model has a nozzle that kind of moves around and all that. Why can't it do that? It wasn't designed to do that. And I think the problem, one, is a money thing. Like, that's not a cheap system, I would imagine. I've never flown one of those types of aircraft, but I can imagine the cost to design it, the cost to maintain it is all very high. So that's why you really only see it on at least U.S. fighters on the F-22. And yeah, there's a bunch in Russia and China's got a few now and maybe some others that I can't think of off the top of my head. But man, I'll tell you what, like it's not a simple system and it's got to do a lot of different things and respond to a lot of different control inputs and whatever all the other systems are that are associated with it. So I would really just say like if the airplane wasn't really designed to need thrust vectoring, maybe there's some other aerodynamic way that it can kind of do something similar to thrust vectoring. The cost probably really isn't worth it. And it's not just the upfront cost to design it, but it's the long-term cost of upkeep maintenance. The engine is a very expensive part of the uh, aircraft. And so, you know, you've got to have backups and spares and everything else, and they all have to come with that system. So yeah. I would say that's probably the biggest thing, Joel. It's just, it's really expensive. Yeah. And it's also complex. You probably said that in heavy 
right? So yeah. if it wasn't yeah. designed in, it's hard to retrofit it. And I know in one of these days, I'd love to get somebody smart from Dryden. All those guys are smart and gals, but somebody who was there a long time and could come out and talk, but they've taken F-18s and I think, as I recall, adapted thrust vectoring to a test bed and same yep. with the F-15. I don't know about an F-16. I've not seen that, but they test it out and check it out. But in the end, it's a trade-off, as we've said multiple times on this show. And so is it worth the cost, the complexity, the weight? Certainly, you can't go back in time and retrofit it to the Hornet and the Viper built really in the 70s. And so that's why it's on the F-22. It's a good question. And it seems, I guess, pretty straightforward, right? Oh, it's just an accessory, like putting cool wheels on your car or a muffler system or something else, you know, just take off the old one, put on the new one, but not so in fighters. All right. Well, as always, uh, we don't have the standard announcements on this episode, but listen to any one of them. And at the end, our very capable announcer, Clint Bell, gives you the phone number and the way you can submit the questions. So feel free to do that because I believe that was our last phone call for a while. What do you say, Boat? We take some emails now. Yeah, let's rifle through these things. All right, cool. I've got one for you. It's from Jevo. He's one of our Patreon supporters as well. He says he read that in 2009, Raytheon adapted the AIM-9X so that it could strike surface targets and they conducted successful tests. On your Strike Eagle episode, the guest told of a F-15 Eagle, Strike Eagle, that is, hitting an Iraqi MI-24 with an LGB. But do you know if anyone has successfully hit a ground target in combat with an AIM-9X or any other air-to-air missile? Well, I don't personally know anybody that's done this, but I know there was some testing that was done on it. It's obviously a different seeker, so it has the capability to do processing a little bit differently than your traditional, you know, AIM-9 Lima mic versions, that kind of thing. And it's looking at more an image as opposed to solely the infrared intensity that's coming through. So I don't know of anybody that's uh, successfully employed one against a ground target, but I do know that that was a you know, follow-on advancement that, that was planned down the road. And as far as any other air-to-air missile... Well, I don't think any other air-to-air missile is going to work on the ground, right? Because, I mean, you could fire the AMRAM in a, like a mad dog mode where it's just going, but you don't have any idea where it's going to go. No. The Sparrow wouldn't have had any chance. So the AIM-9 is the only way. And, and yeah, good point. But when I was a young pilot, even the nine mics, we'd said, hey, if you can uncage the seeker and get a tone rise on a ground target and it's either a last resort or emergency or something, yeah, man, fire it off and see what happens. Yeah. But the only place I know of is in fiction, and that is our good buddy Kevin Miller, who is on the show, Hoser. His uh, very cool series, Raven One, I think it was the second book, Declared Hostile, where one of the characters in there does it, and Hoser writes it in very believable method as he does all of his books. And so yeah, you can check that out if you're interested. But it's one of those things we used to talk about, you know, ready room banter. We'd sit around talking about it, but I don't know of anyone either uh, about I'd have to imagine if they were able to successfully do that stuff, either one, it'd be classified, or two, they'd want to publicize it as another avenue for success, I guess, for combat. Yeah. So, yep. Well, Joe, let's uh, head over to an email from Jason Smith. Okay. He asks, and I'll send this one over to you, for years I've heard rumors that the Super Hornet was going to get an engine upgrade to a 27,000-plus thrust class engine that would also increase its range. Now, with all the news about the new Block 3 aircraft and updates there's nothing about an upgraded engine. So I was wondering if anyone in your circle of contacts know if this is something that could still possibly or potentially happen. 
Well, thankfully, my circle of contacts, Jason, good question, includes some folks out at Boeing in St. Louis. And so I put this question to them because I wasn't sure. Been uh, out of the game a little while. And they said, and I quote, and of course, a little uh, flattery here first, quote, the Block 3 FA-18 Super Hornet features twin GE F414 400 engines that have a proven track record of performance and reliability. Boeing and their partner GE have offered enhanced engine options that can increase thrust and or time on wing, and those could be exercised in the future should the Navy want that capability. So the way I read that is the engine so far has been very successful. Yeah, you can always use more thrust, and apparently the offer is there. The Navy just needs to pony up the money, and it sounds like it hasn't happened yet. But it's a valid question because but I know you guys in the Viper had the, what, the Pratt & Whitney or the GE. Yep. I don't remember. Were they roughly the same thrust class? The GE was a little bit more, okay. but, I mean, it was almost negligible all for right. all intents and purposes. And you had different Pratt & Whitney and GE variants depending on whether you flew a Block 30, Block 40, or a Block 52. Uh, okay. uh, so the 30, the 40, and the 50 were all GE engines. The 42 and the 52 uh, that's right. were all the Pratt & Whitney versions. Yeah, we learned that from T-Day. But no, what I was going to say was the, uh, the Legacy Hornet, if you will, had an EPE engine, Enhanced Performance Engine, that came along. And I want to say each engine and full afterburner went from 16,000 to 18,000 pounds of thrust. So again, just a slight increase, but it did help, especially on the Block 15 F-18Cs that were still light. They hadn't added all the night stuff and boxes in the hell hole that made it heavier. So bigger engines and the still lighter airframe, Block 15 was the way to go. So that was a good one. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. All right, Boat, I'm going to send one back your way now. This is from Ian Crosette. And he says, I just finished the F-22 episode, subsequently dove into the Wikipedia page for more info, and amongst other stats, was amazed at the cost of that aircraft. In your opening bumper, one line always sticks out. The aircraft, the weapon systems, but most importantly, the people. And yes, Ian, we believe in that. Now that line brought a question to mind, Ian continues, what is the cost of the pilot? Now I know you can't measure a human life in dollars, but I was wondering if you have a ballpark monetary figure for the cost of training a pilot from initial commission to earning his or her wings and how about to a thousand flight hours that's a tough one <laughs> you would send me this one all right <laughs> so first i love wikipedia because you never know what you're going to find on there but mm -hmm. the cost of a pilot and you know i think ian is right it's impossible to measure in terms of dollars or anything like that we would always say when we go through training so f-16 basic f-16 training that basically they'd spend a million bucks 
on you yeah. through all the different things that you've gone up through that point, flight hours, the cost of maintenance, all the other stuff. And that's just a ballpark number. There's no real way to quantify that. You see that in a single cost of a flight hour as well, because again, it, what do you include? Does R&D costs go into that or is it just the cost of day-to-day operations or, or anything? So, Ian, I don't have a good answer for you. I'd say it completely depends on what you value when it comes to the quality of the product that you're getting out the back end. And mm-hmm. it is very, very difficult to really quantify that because all of those pilots are going to have different experiences. They're going to come from different backgrounds. And some pilots are straight from the factory of the Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy, mm-hmm. ROTC, whatever the case may be. Some may have gone done something else potentially a weapon system operator sure. or uh, Rio or something like that, and then come over to be pilots. And so they're kind of a leg up when it comes to having exposure to flying. And some have, you know, another career field. I've known a couple of like Air Force engineers, that kind of thing that then eventually came over and were pilots, didn't have that background. But everybody is different and it operates a different way, but I couldn't even begin to fathom what that cost would be. Well, it also depends on what you're going to count, right? Are we going to count the yeah. change of station moves for a young pilot, which switches bases from time to time, and some of the other costs associated with the housing allowances and the food allowances and uniform allowances if they get yeah. such things. So, yeah, it's a challenge. And then just thinking about a thousand flight hours, I mean, let's just make it public math here, boat, help me out. But if it's $10,000 an hour to fly an airplane, which is probably pretty cheap for most airplanes, but what is that, $10 million? Times a thousand flight hours, ten thousand times a thousand. I don't know, something like that. But yeah, somewhere it's there. A lot. It's, it's a lot, lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's go with a lot. <laughs> but yeah, we used to use a million dollars also in the Navy. But the funny thing, boat, is when I went through, it was nineteen ninety three and four and five. And so, if they're still using that phrase, boy, they're getting cheaper because that's probably a million dollars back then is probably two million today. I guarantee that number is inflation and everything else. You can do all the math if you want, but that's right. I think that number is more than that. And and maybe they've cut back with, you know, extra Sims and, you know, you get less flight yeah. hours, you get more simulators, True, but you're also then, you know, potentially the, the cost of the instructors because you're paying their salaries, their housing costs, all that stuff. What if they're, yeah, fit, what if they're married, they've got kids, that's extra. Like it's a lot. And I think that it's hard to ballpark it, but you know, let's throw a stake in the ground. 5 million bucks. We just let's go with go 5 with million. Hold on. Is that an Air Force guy or a Navy guy? Because the Navy guy has to CQ. And so the cost of the aircraft carrier has got to be divided down too. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, know, I'm just... well, I got an Air Force base, so I don't even know. I don't oh, even know good what point. we're doing here. Yeah. Those golf courses are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Those green fees, they'll add up. All right. Well, let's head off in a different direction from an email okay. from Gregory Randis. And Jill, I'll throw this one over your way. So we've all heard how roughly finished Russian aircraft can be. And I read recently that the MiG-25s same series standing right next to each other could be as much as 12 inches either way from the standard. So there could be as much as a 24 inch difference in length between two aircraft. That seems excessively high, but okay. Yeah. Since you fly different aircraft on different days and they have slightly different flight characteristics, I wonder how much large differences like that affect the handling Russian aircraft have versus their Western counterparts. And he adds that he knows this won't be an easy question to answer. (laughs) Well, So, Gregory, with all due respect, I'm going to wave the brown flag here because I used to be the threat aircraft's me at Top Gun, and I had a chance to go to some various places and put my hands on various things, so to speak. I'd never heard anything like that, and a two-foot difference is pretty substantial. Now, supposing I'm wrong, which, as we talked about the top of the show, is not unlikely because it's hard to shoot down World War I balloons, apparently, (laughs) that I think to the crux of your question, it would be very different. If you jumped in a plane that was 
ostensibly the same as another plane that's two feet longer or shorter, then yeah, it's going to handle differently. It's going to have slightly different feel and performance. And I would say even in the F-18 community, and I let you go here next boat, and I bet you're going to say the same thing. Two of the exact same lot and block jets can be a little different because sometimes things get overstressed or sometimes you have a slight mishap and they've got to refix, uh, I guess, fix something. You know, the wing is never quite the same, but it's close enough. And you've got a door that's a little out of alignment and it throws off a little yaw or something. So yes, there is differences in different birds but I don't know. Again, I, I feel like we're punting a lot here, Boat, but I'm not sure I can answer how large the difference would be to take those two jets he's describing, but I suppose it would be noticeable. I'd say it'd be definitely noticeable if it was two feet longer or 12 inches shorter, maybe. I mean, I'm no aerodynamicist. Well, but... And the wingspan could, I guess, alter, right? Oh, yeah, that's very true. Did you guys use the term for jets that just didn't fly quite right as bent? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. And so you'd come across an airplane that was just like, it would fly. It would do everything it's supposed to do. But you're sitting there like two degrees canted to the right <laughs> as you're at cruise. And you're just like, what are we yeah. doing? Why is the airplane yeah. doing this? And you could trim out the rudder and make it fix it. But you know you're less efficient because your airplane is canted off. Or your rudder is now canted off in the wind. Yeah. But I think that's kind of the point of what he's trying to ask is mm-hmm. those flight characteristics are going to change airplane to airplane. And you look at that regardless of who makes it. I think it's always going to be something different. Now you add into the the challenge of having two engines and maybe the engines are different. One produces a little bit more thrust. Sure. And I never had to do with that in my military career since I only flew F-16s, but maybe you did flying F-18s. So you'd have to split the throttles a little bit to mac and match it all. I don't know. It wasn't too noticeable, but there were times. And usually you'd come back and say, hey, you guys need to sync these up a little better. But yeah. generally it wasn't too bad. But let me ask you this, Boat. Did you ever have like a particular aircraft when you were in a squadron? Like, oh man, like I remember I was in one. I think it was like 407. Every time you saw it next to your name on the flight schedule, you know, it's like, dang it. <laughs> so we'd have our, we'd call them bird books and they'd have like the history of the aircraft. And so you'd get every now and then uh-huh. you'd get in an airplane and it kind of started the rumor mill of, you know, somebody would start <laughs> chirping about this and every Friday we'd have a pilot meeting and you'd, everybody would talk about what they did that week and any issues they came up with, you know, eventually get to tail numbers and, you know, chirp a little bit about this little thing. And so then mm-hmm. everybody's ears would perk up and it's kind of like, you know, what is it? The squeaky wheel gets the most oil or whatever the phrase is. Yeah. And somebody would say something about it. And then the next week, somebody would bring it up again and bring it up again and bring it up again. But I think mostly because everybody's eyes were now focused on that one thing. Right. Vice, it just happens to be that way. So maybe a little more sensitive to it or something to that effect. But yeah, I think anybody would look back at a certain airplane and be like, yep, that's the crappy one yeah. or whatever for that week. And then then it would go to heavy maintenance or for whatever it would need to be done and they'd fix it and somebody else would take its place. Transfer it to a different unit. Yeah. I think I've told this story before, but my very first F-18 squadron was a training squadron, of course. Mm-hmm. And it was in El Toro. It was a Marine squadron, actually. And there are two seat B that I ended up finding later in the boneyard. They used to have the word Christine written on the tail because the thing was, it wasn't just that it was down a lot. Otherwise that's like a hanger queen, Uh but it was just like evil. You know, you never knew what it was going to do. So you get all those nicknames. (laughs) That's awesome. That's right. Well, let's see here. Joe, I'll throw another one at you. This one's is from a Josh Finney. Okay. And he says, I'm a prospective Marine aviator and had a question regarding the differences between VFA and VMFA squadrons. You said in a live segment that they are virtually the same, but I was wondering if since the Marines are more focused on the relationship 
between the air elements and the ground elements? Are they more likely to employ their skills in the close air support arena versus, say, a combat air patrol? And how would the F-35 play into that? Well, I'm going to punt on the F-35 because, number one, I just don't know. But number two, I don't think it's going to be any different. And so this is a good question, Josh. And it really comes down to tasking. Because if a Marine squadron, like you remember, we had guests, uh, Wang Chung, who talked about the MAGTAF. If the squadron's going out with the MAGTAF, then they're going to work together. And that's really all they care about. And that's where their tasking comes from. On the other hand, if you have a VMFA that's going to chop to an air wing, and the air wing is going to chop to a task force and deploy on a carrier, and the carrier is going to go out, say, to Fifth Fleet in the Middle East and get our instructions from CENTCOM, well, then it doesn't really matter what squadron. Every squadron is going to get tasked through the air tasking order. We all might do close air support. We all might do combat air patrols. And the Marine squadron, in that case, while they try to be true to their roots on liberty and, and in their discussions and the way they act, in reality, the missions are going to be the same as everybody else in the air wing. And so it's a good question, but it really comes down to who do you report to and what do they want you to do? Now, again, some of those squadrons will deploy to the ground bases like in Kuwait, but not from the carrier. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen that. And I think the Navy brass don't like the idea of that because they don't want a carrier to become a transport. They want it to become the fighting unit. And both that probably goes way back to the days when they were slugging it out between strategic bombers and carriers and subs. And there used to be a lot of, oh, I don't know if animosity is the right word, but a lot of competition between the services. And I think some of that holds over to today. They don't like to deploy aircraft ashore, but they will if they have to. Makes sense. They're expensive. So you got to make them efficient or effective or you know, cost effective, I think is what I'm looking for. So yeah, that makes sense. And I think again, part of it is that they don't want the carrier to change from, oh, we'll just be the way jets get places. They want to protect that. Oh no, this is the thing that uh, you fight from. And so I don't know what I think about that. I've always heard that argument and thought, eh, I get it, but whatever. Anyway, moving on. Andrew Storm wants to know, did you discover a new technical or fight feature in your jet four to five years into flying it? The reason for asking is I keep discovering new minor features in my car after eight years, and I'm wondering if the same thing happens in an aircraft. And Boat, even before you answer, I'm guessing that Andrew Storm wasn't quite as trained in his car as you were on your F-16. Yeah, I was trying to think. I get it, Andrew. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I'm sure there's definitely stuff. But like you said, Jello, you walk into a car dealership and not to dismiss the high-end cars versus the low-end cars, but to me, a car is a car, a car. You're not sitting there busting out the operator's manual and going page by page to make sure you know like what every single thing does. You don't measure how many volts the battery is producing or all that stuff. Like it's way more technical than you need to be able to operate a car for what really is the purpose flip of that is you go to any fighter training unit or any military training unit and you're getting not necessarily grilled but you're definitely expected to know a lot more about the thing that your life is dependent on for survival than your car and i think it's a fair difference and i don't think anybody should feel bad about not going through the operator's manual because i don't <laughs> think 99% of the world does but i don't know jello what do you think oh i totally agree and i think to andrew's point if you want to get a feel for what it's like to be a fighter pilot in this respect go grab that manual which these days are what three or four volumes because it's all the legal ease and different languages but pick the language that works for you study it 
and then have someone give you a test on it and then, you know, study it some more and do it again next week. And, and so, yeah, it's a valid point. And the only thing I would add maybe to assuage Andrew's question here, but, and again, I'm sure this came happened for you is every so often you would get software updates yep. and they didn't just throw the software update into the jet. What did they do? They had someone come out from the test squadron and brief you on what's coming new in that software. And then you might have even taken a little quiz or you get the new book and then off you go. So if you were going from a whatever model car you're driving to a newer version of it and you get that new handbook there and you can read up on what's new and there could be some, you know, I don't know. But have you ever driven a Tesla? I mean, I'm behind the times. I only just drove one recently and I would say that was different than any other car I've ever driven. Oh yeah, no, they're definitely different. Uh, I have a buddy of mine okay. that owns one and it's different. But it's still, you know, for lack of a better yeah. way, it's like taking your car and then slapping a smartphone on top of it. And that's what makes it go. <laughs> like, that's the best way I could describe yeah, it. That's true. If you were to do the same thing with your smartphone, the next time an operating system update comes through, you've got all those things out there. Go through, study it all, and then memorize as much of that as you possibly can and then have somebody quiz you on something random that may or may not look important, but you know, we call in the dash one, the technical orders for the aircraft. Mm-hmm. You need to know what all the operating limits are for the engine, for the airspeeds, That's for right. altitudes, all those things. You need to know all those things. And granted, there's just a sheer quantity difference, I think, between a car and an airplane, but oh, yeah. you need to know that stuff for a airplane because you can't just pull over to the side of the road and park when you're in an airplane. You need to Bingo. know all the operating limits and you don't want to break it. So not to make light of driving a vehicle because it is definitely a, uh, a high threat environment all the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just systems wise. There's a lot more to an airplane than yeah. a uh, car. Uh, well, let's see. I think we beat that dead horse uh, enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go with this one here from Kurt. And he's wondering what it would be like for a Royal Canadian air force CF 18 pilot to transition to the super Hornet and learn carrier landings and go to top gun. And since I have zero experience with any of that stuff, Jello, that is yours. <laughs> Well, I don't know, but I bet you, in fact, I'll probably hear about it uh, as soon as we publish this, that there's somebody out there who's done all these things, Kurt, and I would think it would be no problem at all. I mean, an F-18 is an F-18, even if you put the C in front of it. Uh, I think the Canadian F-18's got the big spotlight on it, as we heard on our NORAD discussion back around Christmas. Otherwise, it flies pretty much the same. The training is not that different. And a Super Hornet, I think the Canadians are getting those, I I think. Is that still in the running? Anyway, they can tighten me up on that as well. But I don't think it's a big deal. In fact, I bet it's happened. I just don't know of anyone. But we did have a happy hour discussion recently with a Royal Air Force carrier pilot who came over and did a tour in FA-18E's Super Hornets and went to the boat. He didn't go to Top Gun, but he did go to the boat. And so if that interests you, as we talked about before, just one of the many extra things you can find on our Patreon page. And I was actually surprised at what he said was harder. I expected him to say night carrier landings were the hardest. And believe it or not, that was not what he said. So anyway, go check that out. You've already said you're out of this one, uh, Boat, so I'm going to keep moving on here unless you want to add anything to that. (laughs) Nope. All right, but I need you to stay awake on this next one because Haken from Sweden, I hope I pronounced that correctly, probably not. He's got a long question. I'm going to stop in the middle so you can answer part of it. Okay. But he says he back-listened to episode one, speaking of sunshine, and would like to reflect on the type A personality that he and I talked about. A while ago, I spoke to a professor about new medical school students, and he said that coming into the competitive environment could be extra hard as students are often used to being the best in their high school class up to that point. Suddenly, that may not be the case anymore, maybe not even second or third, and the shock could actually 
really break them down. In your opinion, does this also go for student military pilots during basic flight training? What is the educational environment like during flight school? And again, I'll pause there, but even though there's some additional part to that, but anyway, what's your thoughts on uh, basic flight training here? Well, I'd say that's a hundred percent correct. And I think one of the things is that it's no longer what you're used to. And so you're going into a new environment. Mm -hmm. You know, I would kind of, I guess, consider flight school. Like if you're playing golf, you're playing against the course. You're not playing against the other people in your flight school. Like it's not the same level of competition as like a sporting event of some kind. And so Mm -hmm. it's not that you are competing against the other people in your class. You're just trying to do the best you possibly can and pass the curriculum and the syllabus that is in front of you. So you, I think everybody would say you'd have to cooperate to graduate. And there's no way that, you know, we just talked about reading manuals and operation limits Mm -hmm. and stuff. There's no way that you can memorize all that kind of stuff on your own and expect to just be able to regurgitate that with, without having conversations with other people, studying with other people, all those kind of things. So you do need the rest of your class, if you will, to help Mm -hmm. you get through that, just like you need the rest of your teammates. So you almost turn into a team when you go through those things. And yeah, I don't know, Jell, is that making sense tracking at all? Absolutely. Let me read the rest of his question and then we'll come back to that because in the Navy, we used to call it coopetition. Okay. In other words, you're cooperating. These are your buddies. But in the end, somebody's going to be number one, somebody's going to be number two. But I think to Hawkins' first question, there's a lot of talented people who go to flight school. I didn't really see anybody who was used to walking on water who suddenly didn't and was humbled. I'm sure that happened internally. A lot of people try to keep their game face on. You know, for me, it was easier in that regard because I was never number one in any school. (laughs) So I was used to being middle of the pack and it worked out for me. But anyway, let me continue with the question. What is the U.S. Navy view on pilot training? And we'll add Air Force to this. Is the aim that every student pilot should qualify? In other words, if meeting the minimum requirements, or is there a selection process during flight school based on we have to attrite or get rid of some of them? Interestingly, he goes on here, in the Swedish Air Force, their aim is 100% in, 100% out, no attrition. So the selection process before being admitted to flight school should sort out which ones are suitable. And the student pilot is treated as a future colleague from the onset. And then this is where we'll circle back. Is it an all positive competitiveness during flight training, i.e. team building, or are there also parts of each one for him or herself? And so this is where I'll continue my answer for you is in my class, I'm still buddies with a lot of these guys. One of them went on to be a general. He was a Marine, which is good. I think the rest of us fell off the train at various points along the way. And I think we did lose one in a civilian mishap actually, which is unfortunate, but you know, for the most part, we had fun. We partied together. We studied together. We gouged each other up as it's called, which is helping each other out. But we did have one guy in my class boat. I'm almost afraid to admit this. And I certainly won't say his name. If he was the first one to get a simulator in the next phase of training, he would call in sick and then he would show up to observe it with somebody else who gets put in that spot. It was no skin off any of our backs. I mean, we liked him okay as as a human, I guess. Maybe, I don't know. I probably shouldn't have based on that, but it should come as no surprise that he ultimately did end up getting attrited. And um, we didn't say, yeah, take that or anything, but it was like, dude, who does that? But yes, we definitely plan for attrition in America's training. At least we did in the Navy. Yeah, I think that's about the same for the Air Force as well. They plan for attrition. They hope for 100 out of 100, but you know, I think they have some realistic expectations with respect to, again, people being in new environments and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. yeah, to your point there on the competition, 
there is, it is a competition to get, you know, number one and everything like that, but it's not at the detriment of other people not passing. So we're not going to actively try to not let somebody pass. We're all trying to work together together, but you know, some people are just more naturally gifted at things. And I think more towards the beginning of the list of questions here as yeah, there's some people that are really, really good at stuff and, and continue to do really well. And some people that, you know, were middle of the road and really excel and some people that were middle of the road and, or really good and, and it fell off for them. So everybody has, you know, good strengths and weaknesses and I was by no means uh remember like you, Jello, yep. the top notch guy. So <laughs> it was no skin off my back that I didn't win. All right, man. Why don't you take this last one? Yeah, all right, here we go. This one is from uh Down Under. And we'll uh, get this one in here from Joel from Australia. Okay. And he asks, I remember an episode of Jetstream, which was a documentary on Canadian Air Force pilots training on the CF eighteen. And one of the students got marked down for taxiing too fast and pushing the engine RPM too high. I know there's a do not exceed RPM in the Hornet in DCS at least, but there's no mention of maximum taxi speeds in the manuals that I could find. So I was wondering roughly what the maximum allowable speeds were when you would taxi around an airbase. Well, DCS, of course, being digital combat simulator, it's the very high fidelity, very realistic simulator for the F-18. Good question. For us, boat in the F-18, it was 17 knots. And generally, you didn't want to go above 80% RPM on the ground, especially if you were turning. You try to go up on the throttles, or advance the throttles, I should say, and then go back to idle before you begin turning because now you're pointing your nozzles in a new place and you could blow someone or something over, especially on a carrier flight deck where everything is uh, very dense and a lot of folks out there. But in the end, you know, you got to maneuver your aircraft and do what it takes. But yeah, 17 knots and 80%. What'd you have in the Viper? I'm pretty sure it was 20 knots. Okay. I think it was maximum of 10 knots in a turn. And then I want to say 75% sounds about right. It's been a little while since I've done it, but uh, I mean, somewhere in that same vicinity and the same process for turning, you know, go back to idle before you start a turn. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly just so that you're not knocking something back there that you didn't recognize when you uh, go to reapply power kind of thing. Yeah. And I have to think the restriction on a turn is simply that these tires aren't built for a lot of sidewall flex, right? Yeah. And neither is the jet for that matter. So no, poor little nose gear tire on an F-16 is so small. I mean, I can't fathom how they engineered that one to survive all the abuse that it takes. (laughs) But yeah, I think you're exactly right. Hey, I went up on two wheels in an A4 one time. On purpose? It was scary. <laughs> no. <laughs> we were doing field carrier landing practices in Mississippi. There was a, a hole in the uh, you know pattern, and they said, all right, so-and-so, 725, whatever aircraft I was in, you're up next, go. And so I quickly tried to jump out on the hold short, if you will, from the hold short to the lineup and go. And as I was making the turn to straighten out on the runway, I was up a little too high on the power, and I raised my right main gear off the uh, ground and was just on my left and on my nose. And <laughs> I think it got some kind of, whoa, Nelly out of the LSO <laughs> shack. You know, those guys are sitting right there watching me. <laughs> Needless to say, I steered back to the left and tried to get back under control, which I did, thankfully, but that got my attention. Oh yeah, absolutely. That'd be scary. <laughs> and I think there was a little bit of wind that wasn't helping me, but I don't know. All right, but well, golly, time flies when you're having fun. We've been yapping here for already close to an hour, and we've got just a couple emails left. Let's save those for next time in case we don't get too many more. We'll, we'll have something to talk about when we get back to our regular episode strategy here with DARPA coming up next on 109 on the 14th of the month. As we wrap up, we haven't actually thanked our new Patreon supporters in a while, so I want to do that real quick. We have Strike Leads Ben Sykes, Sven Weber, Cameron Bellers, Benny Harwell, 
Jeff Campbell and Daniel Bialki. Uh, Daniel Bialki, excuse me. And then uh, new mission commanders, Rob Larson and Derek Daly. All right, Boat, we're not going to do the disclaimer because it's just you and me rapping. And so uh, I think everybody understands it by now. But, man, what else is there, dude? I don't think there's anything else. We've covered a lot, and uh, it's great to be able to reach back out and, and answer some questions. So looking forward to more submissions. And, again, if people have stuff they want us to watch or whatever, we'll add it to the layover list. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And uh, just real quick, getting back to what we were talking about at the beginning with you getting into this training, I was, as you said, blessed by the airline gods and got reinstated. Was that not in the cards for you? Did you choose to move over or what happened there? Yeah. So mine is is 100% based on my option. So I moved from Colorado down to Atlanta about a year ago now. And in that whole shuffle and all the COVID response and everything with uh, all the moves that the airlines have made the last year, they canceled my base move, still staying in the Airbus 320, but they canceled my base move. And so I had to find alternate ways to go. So that's how I ended up instead of being based in Salt Lake City, being based out of New York City, stayed in the same airplane. And in order for me to be based in Atlanta as soon as possible, just to avoid having to commute like you didn't want to have to do, Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be able to get based in Atlanta, but I had to switch over and now I'll go fly the uh, 737. So a uh, blessing and a curse in some respects, but uh, all in all, uh, not having to commute is a big victory. Well, someday when you're a chief pilot at some base somewhere, you can look back at all your experiences and you can talk to the Airbus guys. You can talk to the Boeing guys. You can talk to everybody. That's right. <laughs> all right, Bo. Well, so I'll give you a break. Uh, in fact, I haven't even asked you if you want to play on the DARPA thing, but I'm guessing you're going to be busy studying. So uh, we'll talk about that after we stop tape here in a moment, but appreciate your help as always. And uh, you're doing good work with the Warbirds. So if we don't hear from you otherwise, we'll expect to see you back at the end of the month for the what Lancaster. That's right. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Should be great. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by today. And for everybody else, appreciate you just listening to a couple guys here. We live their glory days and ramble about some different things. And, and again, we just needed to take a break, kind of clear out the questions and also make the numbers work. We appreciate you staying tuned. If in fact you did, and we appreciate you supporting the show and listening and telling your friends about it. So thanks a bunch. Be well, take care. And we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.